If you would turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, and if you would get your uh, notes ready if you're going to try to take notes today, but know this, if you're a guest with us, uh, you don't have to take notes. You can uh, email me for them or you can text me for them. I'll be glad to send them to you. Um, I will be going pretty fast. We are working our way through a series called Angels, Demons, and Dead People, and it is a uh, series to kind of work on the misconceptions that people have for what it means when we die and what the supernatural world is around us and how they might interact with us as angels and or demons. And we've covered angels, demons, and dead people part one, talking about the holy horrors of hell. We figured that we would not uh, cover that one or the other ones uh, in the time we have kids with us. So welcome kids to our service talking about heaven. We figured we'll let you guys worry about sharing hell with them and on your own terms, and we'll talk about heaven today. And uh, so I want you to get ready for that. As you turn to Revelation 21 and 22, let me uh, pray for us as we get going, and then we will start in our time together. Father, I thank you so much that you have given us clarity in your word about the things that matter. I thank you that you have brought us to a place of understanding by reading your word to know what is important when it comes to our time after this life. I pray that you open our eyes today, open our hearts, our minds, to be able to see and understand and to follow after you as you lead the way to understand more about what you have created, what pattern you have set the world to fall in, and how we will move forward as we leave this part of our lives behind when your son Jesus returns. Help us, Lord, to see you rightly and to love you for it and to make much of you. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I know some of you have not been really excited about this series because you didn't want to talk about angels, demons especially, and dead folks. I don't mean that to be derogatory in any way towards people that have gone before us. I just mean that we have a lot of misconceptions about those that go before. And we have a lot of misconceptions about angels and about demons, as you know, as we've covered them in these last few weeks. Uh, this week, we're going to focus on heaven in all its glory. And so I want you to be ready to look at that with me. We're going to start in Revelation 21, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8, and then go back and read verses 1 through 4. I want to get your hearts kind of set right as we read. We're going to walk through chapter 21 and 22 to kind of unpack this, so there's a lot here. Again, if you can't keep up, that's all right. We're going to have it available for you if you want to reach out to our office or to me personally, and I'll be glad to send them to you. So let's just start off by reminding you, we talked about last week, 70 to 80% of people in a fairly recent poll by CBS, 70 to 80% of people in the United States think that they are going to heaven. Okay, so that means that the majority of people in this world think that they are going to heaven. But Jesus makes statements in the Bible that say things like, uh, he says things like, that the, the broad is the way to destruction and there are many who find it, and the narrow is the way to eternal life and there are few who find it. Now, I don't care if you like math or hate math, you pretty much can tell pretty quickly that few does not equal to 70 to 80%, all right? It's kind of the flip-flop of that. And so what I think for most of us, if you go to funerals, especially if you go to enough funerals, you will hear people talk in such a way over people that did not follow Jesus that they'll be in heaven. We know that's not the case. Uh, but we do see a lot of people that think they get there for various reasons. What I'm going to do today is talk about what makes heaven so glorious, what it will be like for us in that place if you are a follower of Christ, and how it's made possible in Jesus. 
And so you might have heard some of these things. It might be some things that you thought wrongly that would be kind of fixed today. And I'm not going to answer all the questions. If you've got further questions, feel free to hit me up, and I'll be glad to respond to you uh, as I have a moment to do so. But let's start off by reading Revelation 21, 1 through 8, and then we'll back up and read 1 through 4 again to get our hearts set on these truths. Look with me, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now make sure we're clear. Jesus is pointing out right here, uh, God's pointed out, actually saying these things. God is saying to us, John is reporting them as he's seen them by God's revelation to him, that those in verse 8 are the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in a lake that burns forever. That means hell. And we know that according to Jesus' statement in the New Testament about the fact that if you lust after someone in your heart, you've already committed adultery. If you hate someone in your heart, you've already committed murder. That anybody in this room, everybody in this room, I should say, will stand and be accused of these sins. The difference will be, are you then covered in the blood of Christ to wash away your sins? Because all of us are liars. All of us have lusted in our hearts after someone. All of us have hated at some point in our hearts and murdered someone internally. Even if we haven't done it externally. And we're all guilty according to those sins. But there are those who put their faith and hope in Jesus. And that Jesus' death on the cross wipes away their sins. Because he drank down the wrath that we all deserve for those sins. So if you have your hope and faith in Jesus, you will be with him in this place here described. Let's back up and see it one more time. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. By the way, that sea was no more. Sea, the sea, was seen as, and you can tell this by reading Revelation 13, reading in Daniel, that the sea was a place described as the place from which chaos came out of. It was a place of chaos, a place from which uh, the enemy would come out of. In fact, in Revelation 13, you see the enemy, the dragon, coming out of the sea. You see the same thing in Daniel. That does not mean there will not be a sea or bodies of water in the new heaven and new earth. It just means that all the chaos will be gone. There will be no more evil coming out at us. 
There's a new heaven and a new earth was here. He saw this. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, this is, by the way, quote, this is exactly the same thing he said all over Scripture. This is what was done in, in the Garden of Eden. God was with his people there to spend time with them, to be with them, to be their God, and they were his people. We see Leviticus 26, 12 saying the same thing and all over Scripture throughout it until the very end, the same echo throughout all the Bible. He says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Finally, coming to fruition. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let me just start off in the place we're going to spend the majority of our time, if you had to parse it out into different parts of the text. I want you to hear this, because of those people that took that poll we talked about a few minutes ago, the 70-80% of people think they're going to be in heaven a large majority of those people probably don't understand that heaven is only glorious because it is where God is. God is what makes heaven glorious. Heaven isn't glorious apart from God. God is what brings all things good into a place. It's wherever He is, and heaven is glorious because God is there. And God will bring a new heaven and a new earth where there is no more rebellion or cruelty to sin. As we see in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. It was talked about in the Old Testament, Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Also, some people don't think it's a real place. It is a real place. Acts 7, 55, 56, Stephen, one of the disciples, is being, uh, basically being stoned to death. He is being stoned to death for his proclaiming the good news about Jesus. And as he's being killed, it picks up in verse 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He saw a place. The curtain had been pulled back where he could see into that plane. And he saw it. John 14, Jesus talks about it in verse 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now, I will say that growing up, I struggled with this passage. I'd heard this, right? Jesus said these words, in my Father's house are many rooms. And I thought, man, how can the world, could you have a house big enough for all those people to live in? You may also kind of feel like that growing up. I mean, just be honest. I thought, that's bigger than any house I've ever seen in my life. If you just count all the people in our church, you know, that's a big house. I'll have a room. And so I never could really understand how that was real. In fact, I thought maybe that was just, even at my young age, I thought maybe that was kind of a metaphor. Maybe he's just talking about something to give us an idea of heaven will be enough room for everybody. But we're going to hang on to that in a minute. We're going to cover that. So just hold that thought. We'll come back to that in a minute. Good? Okay, here we go. Let's get back to this old heaven and old earth. I want you to understand the old heaven and old earth are not completely destroyed. There is 
some scripture we'll cover later that seems to indicate that, but it is not the truth as you see throughout all the rest of scripture. We need to understand that the old earth and the, the old heaven are actually purified, much as in we are. So when you become a believer and made into the Lord's image by being brought to life in Christ, made alive, you were made into a new person. But you're not old persons that destroyed, right? You weren't like disintegrated and all of a sudden knew you, right? No, it's a process for us now called sanctification where God is working in you. first makes you alive, turns you alive. He works on you. And when Jesus comes back, he will fulfill or finish his work he's been working on you. He'll take all the sin away and make you into the glorified state you were meant to be in. He doesn't destroy what you were. You're still a human with a soul. You're just present with him without sin. The same with the world around us. In fact, Romans 8 talks about this, leans us into this as one example, verse 19 and on. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the creation is being set free from bondage. It's not being destroyed. It's being set free. So understand, he is purifying, making new. He's not getting rid of. He's making it right. And all of creation has been yearning for this ever since sin entered the world. So you may ask yourself, then, what would heaven be like? What would the new earth be like? And in fact, there's a lot of text in Scripture. I'm going to give you actually a quote from one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, who talks about this new earth. Because you recognize this, right? We're, we'll talk about it in a minute, but we're not going to stay in some spatial place away from the earth when we go to be with the Lord, right? It's going to be a new heaven and new earth. Heaven comes to earth. We will be together with the Lord on the new earth. And so we'll cover that more in a minute. But C.S. Lewis talks about it and how it will be different and how it will be better and how it will still resemble kind of some things that we recognize even now. And that's, that's a big thing. People think it's going to be totally different. But God created the earth it made it right and good before sin entered the world. He's fixing it back to the way it was originally intended to be. He's going to make a new heaven, new earth. C.S. Lewis talks about it in a story in one of his Chronicles of Narnia. And he talks about it. Remember, Aslan in the story is God. Okay, Aslan is God. He says, when Aslan said you can never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here, just as our world, England, that's where the story is set, just as our world, England and all, is only a shadow or a copy of something in Aslan's real world. In other words, the world in which we will see and experience will not look that much different, it'll just be a better one, because what we live in now is the shadow or copy of those things. Just like the old temple is a shadow or copy of the new city. Just like the old things we saw in the Old Testament for sacrifice were a shadow or copy of the sacrifice of Jesus. They weren't the real thing. They pointed to the real thing. He goes on. He says, you may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay or the, of the sea or a green valley that wound away among the mountains. But in the wall of that room opposite to the window, there may have been a looking glass. And as you turned away from the window, you suddenly caught sight of that sea or that valley all over again in the looking glass. And the sea in the mirror or the valley in the mirror were in one sense just the same as the real ones. Yet at the same time, they were somehow different, deeper, more wonderful, more like places in a story. 
It's a story you've never heard but very much want to know. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that, he says. If ever you get there, you'll know what I mean. I think that is a good picture of what we see all throughout Scripture when you put it together about what the new heaven and the new earth will look like. And we also see in verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God will be the one who personally wipes away your tears. Do you see this? God, who has been transcendent in most of our lives in a way that seems untouchable, will be present with us and will wipe away our tears as a personal, loving, heavenly Father when heaven meets earth. This is a love expressed that is beyond our understanding or capability to imagine right now. But the truth of the matter is that when you see that, even the touch there of him wiping away your tears demonstrates for us that if you don't want God now, there's no way you really want to be in heaven. That's why the people that answered in a poll saying they want to go to heaven, what they really mean is I don't want to go to hell, and I don't want to be in a place, I want to be a place that's better. What they don't get is that it's better because God is present. And if you don't want to be in a relationship with God now, if you don't want to spend time with Him now, if you don't want to enjoy Him now, then what makes you think you'd enjoy Him later? Nothing changes except it's more real, it's more intimate. It's more excellent in the relationship. In fact, in that place, when we are there, we will revel in ecstatic joy in His presence, greater than anything we've ever experienced. Second Chronicles, I'm going to read you a whole bunch of passages that point to what it's like to be in the presence of God. Listen to these things. See if it rings a bell in your heart about how you have experienced him or not. Second Chronicles 5, 13 and 14. It was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord... Here's what they're saying. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord, was filled with the cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. You see what happened? God showed up, and his presence was there, and his presence filled that place. And when his presence filled that place, everybody had to stop doing what they were doing because they were so overwhelmed, they could not minister anymore. They were overwhelmed in the presence of God to stop and just take in His glory, His grandeur, His majesty, His beauty, His weightiness in their presence. How about this, Luke 2.9. We see a glimmer of it in the Christmas story. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Listen, the glory of the Lord, His weightiness, His presence shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So these shepherds, see this angels singing, the glory of the Lord is there, and when they see the glory of the Lord, it drives them to great fear. Now, the difference is, when we go to be in heaven with God, we will not be filled with fear because fear is removed. There's no more sin. There's no more inability to stand in the presence of God because of our sinfulness. But instead, we get to take in all of that glory and be filled with ecstatic fullness of joy. In fact, Jude 24 talks about it. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. With great joy. 
or Psalm 1611. You make known to me, the psalmist says, the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Fullness. What we have experienced in our life up to this point in joy is joy that is not to the fullest because it fades away. You may have found great joy in something that you might have even felt overwhelmed in it when a, a child was born or when your spouse said yes. For some of us, we were so thankful, right? Overwhelmed with joy. But even that joy begins to subside over time. And you have to keep pressing in to experience more joy and seeing more moments of it. And we only get moments here and there of that joy. But it says here, the psalmist says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. That means never-ending, always full, overwhelming joy in your presence. And he takes it further. He says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What's at the right hand of the Father in heaven? Jesus. So you, you will not like heaven if you do not like God. You will not enjoy heaven if you do not enjoy God. All the pleasures you will receive in heaven. I used to ask my dad, what's heaven going to be like? And I heard all these different stories, but the ones that the scriptures give are so clear. It's not about playing baseball all day long if you want to. It's not about not having to work anymore because there'll still be service to do. But it's about receiving all the pleasure you can possibly get from being face-to-face with Jesus. Man, what if we were filled with some of that joy now because we pressed in to put ourselves face-to-face with Jesus more often? How about Psalm 27? One thing have I asked of the Lord, David says, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's what heaven will be like, that we will just yearn to be in his presence, to experience him, to see his beauty. Psalm 73, with whom I have in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do we really yearn for him like this? Have you ever really yearned for him like this? It's what heaven will be filled with. If you do not know God now, do not want God now, why would you want to be in heaven? But for us, who have been bought with the precious blood of the Lamb, how we long to be in his presence. We see later on the response of the people is, come Lord Jesus, come. Those who love Jesus want him to return even now so that we might be with our Savior for whom we long. Do we want him like that? This is a pure desire of those who call themselves followers of Jesus. Heaven is about being in God's presence. He's what makes heaven glorious. Like secondly, we will live in heaven on earth with God. I mentioned it earlier, we will live in heaven on earth with God. Look back up here, look at this. Chapter 21, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, 
Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as a crystal. It had a great high wall, the twelve gates, and at the gates, twelve angels. And on, the, and on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, Three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Keep looking at this. Verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square. That means it's a perfect square, right? It lies four square. Its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurements, which is also an angel's measurement. Look, the city will be greater in size than anything we have ever seen. We hear these numbers. We don't really grasp the numbers. Let me put it in today's vernacular for us Western folk. The length and width and height, okay? It's a cube. The length and width, height, they're all the same. And when it says 12,000 stadia, it means that they will each be approximately 1,400 miles long. Put that in perspective for just a moment. Think 1,000 miles, 1,400 miles this way, 1,400 miles width-wise, 1,400 miles tall. I'm going to give you a picture to put it in your brain. Let's see the picture. This is what it would look like if it got dropped into the United States of America. We have no comprehension for something like this. It probably won't be dropped in the U.S., by the way. That's not the Holy Land. Who knows where it'll actually be in the new heaven and new earth. But just think about that. 1,400 miles across, 1,400 miles the other way, and 1,400 miles up. Now, when you take that statement by Jesus that in my house are many rooms, it takes on new meaning when you see it in this light. There really are enough rooms. And the walls around this city are approximately 240 feet thick, based off the measurements given. And it's described using the most beautiful and precious gems known to man. It's what might be described as beauty beyond imagination, like John is having a hard time describing the beauty of this place. He is, after all, describing something heavenly with finite words, something infinitely beautiful with finite language. Pick up with me in verse 18. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. You see how he even says that? Pure gold, clear as glass. I'm not understanding how that works. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. Giant pearls, right? And God can do that because he can make anything. And the streets of the city were what was pure gold, transparent as glass. Kind of messes with some of our songs, doesn't it? Pure gold, transparent as glass.
it's kind of a crazy picture to see that these 12 gates around this city would be so small that when you backed up and saw that, you wouldn't even notice them. And this is the city that's going to come down out of heaven, heaven to earth, New Jerusalem. And look, the better part of that is even this. Verses 23 through, 20, 22 through 27 describe to us that there is no temple in this place because God is the temple. There's not a need for us to worship Him separated with one going in for us to make atonement because the atonement's already been made in Jesus. And He will dwell with us in this new holy of holies. Look at this, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. It doesn't say there are no stars. It doesn't say there are no suns or moons. It says simply there's no need of them because God's glory is shining, and the lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. That means the gates will never be shut because it is completely safe. There's no reason to close the gates to keep it safe there. And there's no night, no worry to be robbed in the middle of the night, no worry to be killed in the night on an off-road when you have to camp out somewhere on the way to somewhere. It is safe, pure, right, no worries, everything good, everything glorious. No worries whatsoever. They will bring... They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will never will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Isaiah 66 talks about it. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? In other words, you build me a temple like you're going to house me. I don't need you to build me a house. It's like Peter does the same thing, right? Jesus goes up to the Mount of the Transfiguration. He's transformed right before his eyes. And there's Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus. And Peter's like, ooh, let me cover you up with a tent. Let me build you a tent real quick to honor you. Right? Like, you don't need that. God is my covering. God says, I don't need a temple. There was a temple in the Old Testament. Ever since the beginning of God dwelling with men, there was a tabernacle in the desert when he started dwelling with them in the desert. And then we see that finally Solomon built the temple. And in that temple and in the tabernacle was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was the place, the inner sanctum, where only the priest or Moses back in the day could go into and talk to God on behalf of the people. He made intercession for the people. And when the priests came along with the temple, they would go in to make sacrifice. The sacrifice would be given for the sins of the people, and that blood would be taken in and sprayed over the holy seed of God to show that there was death that took on the, the punishment that was meant for the people. And the problem was it was for animals, one animal being punished for all the people. Not really a good setup, right? It doesn't seem like that's worthy of the people's sin to be atoned for. That's because it pointed to a future coming. So when Jesus shows up in John 1, we see this where it says, that, and, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he dwelt in the flesh. Like he came in the flesh. That word for he dwelled in flesh is the same word used in the Old Testament translated as tabernacle, is what it's used there when it says, and, and Jesus became flesh. He tabernacled among us. He's carrying on this idea. Now it's God in Jesus, not in a temple, God in a walking temple, Jesus. And then Jesus lives the perfect life we could not live, dies the death we all deserve for our sins because we're sinners, and then he raises in victorious glory over Satan, sin, death, and hell, 
goes to prepare a place for us and sends his holy comforter, his Holy Spirit to live within us. So now we as a church are the temple of God. You see that? Now we are the temple dwelling. So now we are the ones where people come to meet God as we have the Holy Spirit living in us to give the gospel. And so all these pictures are going on, but now when we get to be in heaven with him, the Holy Spirit in us brings us into the presence of God. And now God fully in our presence, not where we have to worry about being destroyed when we see him, like he talks to Moses about, not, not being separated in any way. When sin's removed, we stand in his presence fully enjoying him without any other confines need to be between us. You see, that was ripped away when Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished and died. That curtain separating people from the Holy of Holies was torn in two. And now, because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and later when we go to be with him, we'll be in his presence, seeing him face to face, nothing hindering our enjoyment of him. Nothing. Being in his presence fully. First Kings talks about the Holy of Holies. It says the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. See, the Holy of Holies was approximately 35 feet by 35 feet by 35 feet. So it was a cube, just like this. This was like the small inner sanctum. And also the Holy of Holies was a dark place. No light would make it in. They had to light lamps. Or actually when God's presence would come, His Shekinah glory would light up the room. So the priests could see what was going on and do His thing in there. And now we don't need that because God's presence will be with us in this city and His light will be enough from His glory that we don't need any other light. We'll dwell in his presence fully, together, not separated by one because our intermediary was Jesus who went through and made the passage open. And now we approach the throne with boldness, the boldness of Christ. And we get to be with him forever. Heaven's about being with God. If you don't want to be with God, why do you want to be in heaven? It's all about being with him. Another thing, real quick, heaven will be a place of infinite worship and joy in Jesus. Now, some of us, we go all of a sudden, whoa, i got to worship like the whole time? See, you don't understand. Our response to who God is and what he's done for us and what he's promised to do, that is worship. Our response is worship. So either you act like it doesn't matter, like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's pretty neat I learned today. Or you respond in your heart being turned back to him and making much of him because of what he's done for you. When you stand in his presence and recognize how great the step was for Jesus to step out of eternity and into a human person, like to become fully man as well as being fully God, when you see the, the depth of that because you're finally in his presence to see his greatness and grandeur with your own eyes, it will drive you to worship. You will be overwhelmed because you want to make much of him. It will be what we do because we love it. Look at Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. By the way, just a note, see that? Tree of life there. Tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Sin happened. You got to get out of here. You can't be around the tree of life lest you live and be a sinner forever. And so God now puts us back into his presence, and there's the tree of life again, Eden restored. You see? Then we see the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. That's because Jesus became a curse for us on the cross. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. 
We will see Jesus. We've heard about him. We've experienced him through the Holy Spirit. We've never laid eyes on him. And then we will see him in all his fullness, in all his glory, fully God, fully man, that in his one person he brought together full deity of God into personhood with us and connected us back in his one person so that we could be brought into the family of God by his death on the cross in our place for us. We will get to see him face to face as much time as we can endure with him. We will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. And they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. It will be a pure, and it will remain pure, because God has purified the earth from the curse of sin. You see in Genesis 3.17, when Adam and Eve sinned, God said unto Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it the days, all the days of your life. The greatest part of the new heaven and the new earth is seeing Jesus in all his glory, and he's overcome all that curse because he became the curse on the tree. This is cursed is the man who hangs on a tree, and Jesus hanged on a tree for us so that he could be cursed in our place so we don't have to be. So he could endure the full wrath of God, drinking it down to its very dregs. And for now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known, and we will worship him. Because it's what we yearn to do. And we will worship him because he is worthy. Let me tell you this too. Like Jesus makes a statement here. Revelation 22, 12 through 15, Jesus says, I am coming soon to bring final judgment and to take his people home. Look at verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Look, we don't know the day or time. Even Jesus said, I don't know. My Father knows alone. We don't know the day or time, but we know it will be soon. And yes, he said that 2,000 years ago, but to God, a 1,000 years is as a day, and a day is as a 1,000 years, and we have no idea when that time is going to come. But what we do know is the time will come, and when it comes, it will be too late. Today is a day of repentance, brothers and sisters. Today is a day to turn your heart to the Lord. Today is a day to let go of sin, to turn and hold on to the Savior, the one who gave his whole self for you, and now give yourself back over to him because he is the one that will give you grace and mercy and love and joy in its fullest forever and ever. Jesus has provided the way to heaven so that we might live forever in the Holy of Holies with him and no longer be separated by our sin. And it's time for you to wash your robes, brothers and sisters. Friends. It means wash them in the blood. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross created a fountain filled with blood. 
so that we might be cleansed in our sinfulness. Hebrews 9.11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that means if all the Old Testament stuff worked for them, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How holy is the Holy One who opened up the Holy of Holies for us? How much is his sacrifice worth? For us who believe, brothers and sisters, this means that we are strangers and exiles in this place but we are citizens of heaven to come. There is a place, and it's real, and it's already there. It has not yet come to our earth, but we long for our home, and we are citizens, and not citizens of this place so much now, but citizens of that place. So yes, we will be good citizens in this land while we live here because we will show the love of God through the way in which we vote, through the way in which we participate in community, the way in which we participate in being a citizen of this nation and serve our nation. But ultimately, we are not citizens here. So we shall not, brothers and sisters, let the political landscape make our lives good or bad because we have a king who cannot be usurped no matter who's the president, no matter who's the senator, because we have the king of kings and lord of lords. We belong to that kingdom, not to this place. We are no longer caught up in things of this place that will drag us through the mud if we keep our eyes focused here. And the stuff that we own here is not our own. So let us let it go and let us grab hold fully of the mission that God set before us and be endeavored to be a part of the kingdom of God and not be worried so much about being a kingdom person of this place. Brothers and sisters, we spend so much time. Hebrews 11 says, These all died in faith, those who have gone before, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to, call, to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And Peter says that He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heaven will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise... We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Whereas Jesus says, do not, listen brothers, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Look, here's the problem. We hold things high that are not meant to be held high. And we don't hold the Savior high a lot of the time. This is the truth for most of us. I'm sure I'm speaking not just for myself, although I am speaking for myself. We hold things up high that are meant to be held loosely. 
things of this earth, things of this world, even things that are good things. And what is to be held high is the Savior who gave himself for us. And when we turn that upside down, we begin laying up for ourselves treasures on earth. And where our treasure is, there is our heart. You see, the response we should have is what we see here in Scripture at the end, where the response of the people is, come, Lord Jesus, come. That means we as Christians, we as followers of Jesus, should be begging Jesus to come back now. If you cannot say that with your own heart because of something that stands in the way, then you have created an idol out of that thing, even if it's a good thing. And you may say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What about, I just want my kid to come to faith. I, I get it. So pray for that to happen, and God can change the heart in an instant. Even when Jesus is on the way, he can change a heart. But if you want even that more than you want to be with the Lord, we have missed the point of what it's about to be in the presence of God. It is that much greater than any joy you get out of anything else. If you say, wait a minute, I just want to get married first, or I just want to have kids first. You don't understand, those things are shadows of the things to come. Those things are greater. And yes, God wants your children saved. God wants your family saved. God wants your friends saved. He wants those things as well. So cry out to him for him to save save them and then cry out for Jesus to come. Lord, come. Make it right. Bring back goodness. Take away sin. Take away mourning. Take away sickness. Take away cancer. Take away pain. Take away suffering. Take away all these things and bring us the joy that is full and never ends. Give us that kind of joy. Can we say that with him when he says this? Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And how would it change us if we yelled out at the top of our lungs in our time of prayer to the Lord, like, come, Lord Jesus, I just want you. How would we let go of the things that drag us down? How would it change the way we live in the moments we've been given until he returns? How would it change how we do what we do with the things we've been given, the monies we've been given, the the jobs we've been given, the people we've been given as stewards, not as owners, for what we own is nothing. We are dead to self, but Christ owns it all. Let us live in such a way that we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. And that should be our mantra. Lord, save them and let me be a part of it. And come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. But I feel like I must beg you to ask the Lord to reveal in your hearts what it is that you might be idolizing or who it might be that you might be idolizing and putting in the place of God. Do not live one more day with holding those things up because the joy you think you have in that thing or the joy you want from that thing can never be as full as the joy you would get from putting it in its rightful place where it's meant to be and to see God as that thing for you. So I beg you, when I pray in a moment, that you would begin to pray and that God would make it clear to you that you might turn back to Jesus and let that thing go to him. Lay it at his feet. He may give it back, but it will never be given to you above him, for he alone deserves to be worshipped. Maybe this is your first time hearing all these things and you think, this is too much. Yes, it is. 
And heaven will be too much for all of eternity and all your glorious joy. And you will experience it over and over and over again. As Paul Washer said, it'll be like the day you got the highest you ever got off of any experience in your life. And the next day will be starting at that same point and taking off to the next level you've never experienced. And the next day will be starting at the top of the day before and going again to the highest you've never felt before even more. Over and over and over again, the joy that comes in being the presence face-to-face with Jesus. I beg you to give your life to him because he gave his life for you. You don't need me. I will be down here at the end of our time. As we take the Lord's Supper, I'll be down here for you, but you don't need me. You have Jesus as the one who's interceding on your behalf. Pray to him. He can save you. And then let us rejoice with you as you share that with us. Father, we need you to work in us because we are incapable of living up to the standard that you have set. But thank you, Lord, that you sent your one and only Son who is completely perfect and holy to come and live in this place to die on the cross in our place, the one who is perfect and holy, who died under the wrath we deserve, even though he fulfilled all the law, so that we then could be declared righteous, his righteousness, that our robes could be washed in his blood, that we might be purified from our sinfulness. Thank you for giving us, Jesus, that we might live in your presence forever. Lord, thank you for your goodness and your glory and your kindness and your mercy and your grace. Father, I just beg you to work in our hearts to change us. Change us more to the image of Christ so that you get all the glory. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.